Well, good morning, church. Happy Easter. (laughs) Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to read Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 through 11, and then primarily camp in verses 10 and 11. Would you stand with me for the reading of the word? Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Why? Why does the Apostle Paul want this righteousness? What's so important about this righteousness? Verse 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the Word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Father, be glorified in Your church through the proclamation of Your truth. Exalt Your Son. Shine the light of Your glory upon Him and cause us to see Him and behold Him to be found in Him with a righteousness that is not our own, but the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And may we see Him high and lifted up, and may we follow in all of His steps. We praise You for the mercy of the resurrection and how it is the evidence that Your mercies are new every morning. We praise You and we ask for Your help to open the eyes of our heart and enlighten our eyes. Give us understanding into who You are and into Your ways in this life until we attain to the resurrection from the dead with Him. In Jesus' name, Amen. When 
Philippians chapter 3, there's a clear argument to place no confidence in the flesh, to place no confidence in yourself or your work or your own ability to keep the law according to your standard, whatever standard that might be, and to count every good thing about you as rubbish. If those good things would be hindrances to you knowing and finding righteousness from God that depends on faith and not on you, then they are rubbish. They are rubbish. It doesn't mean they're rubbish in every way, but it means in terms of meriting righteousness, they are rubbish. And the Apostle Paul concludes in this section of uh, Philippians chapter 3, in verses 10 or 11, and he really gives the whole reasoning behind why he has laid such an argument for placing no confidence in the flesh and placing all of his confidence in Christ and his work because there's righteousness that he needs. You understand that if you're going to know God, you must have righteousness. No one knows God. No one has an intimate relationship with God. No one can approach the throne of God No one can approach His blazing, consuming fire of glory and His utter perfections without being consumed unless they actually have His righteousness. And so the Apostle Paul says, I want the righteousness that comes from God, not a righteousness of my own. I want the righteousness that comes from God that actually can lead me to know Him. That's why he says in verse 10 that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now notice something here. Notice this. At the beginning of verse 10, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection. Notice in verse 11 that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Sandwiched between those two things is something we would prefer to not think is a reality on Resurrection Sunday. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and what? And may share His sufferings becoming like Him in His death. Now, Everything about the resurrection is worthy of our celebration. What it is not worthy of is our triumphalism. It's not worthy of everything being understood to be complete and full victory now as if we experience all of the blessings of the victory of Christ now. It's as if the Apostle Paul is just protecting us from that mentality when he says, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, but lest you get too jazzed about that in some way that would be inordinate as is common in the church today. Everything is triumphalism. Everything is mere emotion as if that's how we purely know Christ. Everything is knowing Christ through Sunday morning entertainment. And he says, I need this righteousness that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. True. 
but Anne may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Why? Because if I share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, this is evidence to me in this life that I, by any means possible, whatever means possible this life requires of me, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, that should be a great consolation to you. It should be a great consolation to you because you don't want hope on Resurrection Sunday that's not rooted in reality. You know? You don't want to hear me stand here and say, and all of my physical weakness and sickness this morning, sitting in a stupid chair, that everything's just fine because Jesus raised from the dead. You don't need me to sit here and say stupid, lofty platitudes about the resurrection when you all know well that whether it's sickness or grief or sin or someone else's sin or being sinned against or persecutions, um, loss of family members because of their rejection of Christ, all of the sufferings of this life, all of the sufferings that were Christ's, you know them. You know them. And so you don't need me to stand here and sit, sit here and tell you lofty things as if uh, we should think ourselves excusable in our arrogance that we are somehow going to rise above what all the saints of history have experienced in the suffering between the resurrection of Christ and our resurrection from the dead with Him. That verse is beautifully sandwiched in between. Some friends and my brother and some other brothers in the Lord have sent me some things to give consolation to my soul and encouragement to me. I'm going to read a bit more than I would normally uh, just because I think this will help you and also because I'm very weak. So, this is Calvin, and Calvin is writing letters, and uh, this is really winding down Calvin's life. And he's writing to, the, to these physicians, and this is what he says. He says, um, speaking of his condition now, tormented with gripings of the colic, afflicted with hemorrhoids, threatened with expectoration of blood. At present, all these ailments, as it were, in troops, assail me. As soon as I recovered from... I don't exactly know what all these are. I didn't look them all up, but just know. As soon as I recovered from the Corten egg, I was seized with severe and acute pains in the calves of my legs, which after being partially relieved, returned a second and a third time. At last, he's mid-50s. He's mid-50s. At last, they degenerated into a disease in my articulations which spread from my feet to my knees. An ulcer in the hemorrhoid veins long caused me excruciating sufferings. An intestinal ascarides subjected me to painful titillations, though I am now relieved from this vermicular disease, but... Immediately after, in the course of last summer, I had an attack of nephritis. 
As I could not endure the jolting motion of horseback, I was conveyed into the country on my return. So he goes to the country trying to find some healing, some respite, some recovery. On my return, I wished to accomplish a part of the journey on foot. I had scarcely proceeded a mile when I was obliged to repose myself in consequence of a lassitude in the reins. And then, to my surprise, I discovered discharged blood instead of urine. As soon as I got home, I took to bed. The nephritis gave me exquisite pain from which I only obtained partial relief by the application of remedies. And then he goes on to talk about the pain of kidney stones. He says, my sedentary way of life, to close this letter to the doctors, my sedentary way of life to which I am condemned by the gout in my feet precludes all hopes of a cure. I'm also prevented from taking exercise on horseback by my hemorrhoids. Add to my other complaints that whatever nourishment I take imperfectly digested turns into phlegm, which by its density sticks like paste to my stomach. (laughs) And he says this. But I'm thoughtlessly tasking your patience, giving you double labor as a reward of your previous kindness, not indeed in consulting you, but in giving you the trouble to read over my vain complaints. He writes to Bollinger in just a sentence, you will not be surprised then if so many united sufferings make me lazy. It is with much ado I can be brought to take any food. The taste of wine is bitter. But while I wish to discharge my duty in writing to you, I am only tiring out your patience with my insipid details. I love that. And then my favorite, and this is so important. This is so important. This was a dear brother to Calvin. His name is Farrell, and uh, a dear co-laborer in the Gospel. And in May 1564, he writes to Farrell, Farewell, my most excellent and upright brother. Calvin knows his time is coming to a close at this point. Farewell, my most excellent and upright brother. And since it is the will of God that you should survive me in the world, live mindful of our intimacy. That interesting. Who writes like that? What man writes like that and understands brotherly affection? Be mind, live mindful of our intimacy, which as it was useful to the church of God, Brotherly intimacy is useful to the church of God. It was useful to the church of God, so the fruits of it await us in heaven. I'm unwilling that you should fatigue yourself for my sake. In other words, I don't want you to come to visit. I draw my breath with difficulty. Every moment I am in expectation of breathing my last. It is enough that I live and die for Christ. In other words... Don't make the trip. I might not make it before you get here. But it is enough for me that I live and die for Christ. 
who is to all his followers a gain both in life and death. Again, I bid you and your brethren farewell. I'm going to kind of close the introductory thought here. Pharaoh wrote to another man a month after this, writing and honoring Calvin with his words after Calvin's passing. He says, Oh, why was I not taken away in his stead? And he preserved to the church which he has so well served, and in combats harder than death. Calvin wasn't a scholar writing in an ivory tower. That's what he wanted to be. When he got called to repentance for that, he repented and stayed in Geneva and suffered and suffered and suffered. It's probably no surprise that all of his physical ailments in his mid-50s were the fruit of combats for the faith greater than death. Oh, why was I not taken away in his stead? And he preserved the church which he has so well served and in combats harder than death. He has done more and with greater promptitude than anyone, surpassing not only the others but himself. Oh, how happily he has run a noble race. May the Lord grant that we run like him and according to the measure of grace that has been dealt out to us. This has always been the story of the saints. Always the story of the saints who know the righteousness of God that comes from faith. The ones that know Him. The ones who have actually taken hold of the pearl of great price. The ones who have actually went and found a treasure and buried it in a field and bought the whole field to make sure they never lost it. Knowing Christ... Those who know Christ, this is their experience of life always. Because Jesus is risen from the dead and has not yet returned to make all things right. Combat's harder than death. Combat's harder than death. Sickness, grief, Suffering. I meant to bring it up here. Uh, someone, my wife handed me a quote from G.K. Chesterton this week. And um, the, the gist of it was that the only humility we have today is our inability to actually have conviction about the truth. The only humility we have today is our inability to have conviction about the truth when what, it, what humility was... Uh, what true humility used to be was for a man to doubt himself and have conviction about the truth. But the only humility we have today is essentially to doubt the truth. That's our humility, to have no conviction about the truth. And as soon as you have any conviction about the truth, you will start to face combats harder than death. Right? Don't be afraid to say something that's going to cause you to be called a troubler in Israel, like all the prophets, when you're together with your family today. Just don't be afraid to say something. 
Right? Don't do it for vain glory. That's useless. But for the sake of love, concern for the gospel, in defense of the honor of Christ, do something. Say something. Say something to somebody about something sometime. And you will face combats harder than death. You say, no, you're teaching the church to be obnoxious. And I say, no, your only humility is to doubt the truth. Because you think that somehow you can be better than Jesus and not suffer. That's what you think. You think you can be better than Jesus and not suffer. You think that you can be better than Jesus and, and suffer no, no, with no one. Suffer not with your family, not with the world, and not with anyone. Except Jesus' family called Him crazy. Jesus' family came to take hold of Him to stop Him in His ministry because they considered Him out of His mind. His own mother! So don't be arrogant and think that somehow your faithful Christianity can do a work around the steps of Jesus when the Apostle Paul is telling you if you know Him, you do know a power of the resurrection from the dead because He's changed your life. He's changed your life and He's changed countless millions and billions down through history. And He has brought salvation to their souls. The power of the resurrection He's changed their life. That you may share in His sufferings. That you may share in His sufferings. The power of His resurrection. And may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. And here's here's what you have to know about Jesus. Nothing new for many of you. You have to... That I may know Him... I want to know the power of His resurrection from the dead. Right? The power of His resurrection. And you know this because He's changed your life for those all of you who believe. But that's not the only part of Jesus for you to know. He sends you through suffering that you may know Him in His suffering. And so when you suffer, the first thought you have to have is this is for me to know the suffering of Jesus. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and I will count it a privilege and I will count myself worthy to suffer and share in His steps. Whether it's persecution or grief, sickness or loss, I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings. Calvin knew what it meant to share in the suffering of Christ. People showing up in the middle of the night throwing rocks through His windows constantly under threat of life. And continuing to love the sheep. That I may know Him. 
what, what more satisfying, what more satisfying reality is there than that I know him? What more precious? What more precious reality is there than that I know him? What? What can you find in this world worth so much is this that I know him? Jeremiah 9. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. What good is wisdom in and of itself? Let not the rich man boast in his riches. What good is your money in and of itself? Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Now, the great consolation that we have because Christ is risen from the dead and that we know Him and the power of His resurrection. And we press on to know more of the power of the resurrection in us and through us and the suffering of following in His footsteps. Knowing Him in His sufferings also. The great consolation is that if we have suffered for Him, we also will live with Him. And that's what verse 11 is saying. That by any means possible. You know what? To the Apostle Paul, to the Apostle Paul, nothing matters. Nothing matters. Nothing matters. If I gain Christ, nothing matters. Whatever assails me, if by any means possible, so that if by any means, if by any means possible, whatever assailed me, whatever assaults me, whatever must come, whatever suffering for His sake I must experience, whatever prison cell I'm going to sit in, and for however long when he writes the letter to the Philippians. Whatever difficulty I face, whatever money I give up in order to have my wife at home and bear children. Whatever pressure to my budget I experience because of faith in God's promise to bear children. In God's command, I should say, to bear children. Whatever whatever suffering you face over at IU because you have faith and your soul is tormented by the wickedness constantly propagated there. Whatever suffering you face waiting on God to bring you a spouse, whatever grief you experience in life because it's cursed of sin and all men still die. Whatever rejection from whoever it comes, it's necessary if by any means possible. These things are necessary. 
because those who suffer with him will also live with him and reign with him. Because in verse 11, this consolation is that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What is Christianity if it's not the life between the beginning of verse 10 and verse 11? What is it? What are Christians who don't hold as their treasure that I may know Him? What, I don't even know what Christianity is that doesn't have the looking unto Christ to know Him and His sufferings as you also suffer for His sake. What is it? No faithful saint has ever experienced that. None. None. Maybe you haven't, won't experience the greatest degree of persecution and martyrdom or something, but no Christian has lived long in this world without feeling vexed by their presence here and as if they don't belong and as if they just, this, is, this place just isn't home to me. And I would prefer to not have to stay here any long than, longer than necessary. Though, I would like to stay here for your benefit. You know, the Apostle Paul. That's, but for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If by any means possible, you know, come what may, in your prayer life should be this tender-hearted submission to God. Whatever you have to do, Father, make me faithful for a lifetime to know Christ's power and His suffering. whatever His providence brings. However long a bittersweet providence lasts. Oh God, my Father in Heaven, make me faithful for a lifetime and teach me to know Christ and to value this suffering as my avenue to know Him in the real life He lived on my behalf. Holding hope always that what's held out to you in the resurrection from the dead is eternal blessedness. Samuel Rutherford was a dear pastor in the 1600s. And... Um, you know, communication was very different. Letter writing was uh, the means of communication. Things moved slower. Letters got there slower. 
Letters returned slower. But he writes to, uh, he, I think was often away, I don't know for how long, but he would be away for a couple months' time. Um, I don't know how often from the sheep that he cared for. And they would write him when he was away, and he would write them back. And he writes to this one sister in the church. He says, Madam, grace, mercy, and peace be multiplied upon you. I received your ladyship's letter in which I perceive your case in this world savoreth of worship and communion with the Son of God in His sufferings. You cannot... You must not, you must not have a more pleasant or more easy condition here than he had. Isn't that what we just want to live for? A more pleasant and easy condition than he had. You cannot, you must not. who through afflictions was made perfect. We may indeed think, cannot God bring us to heaven with ease and prosperity? Who doubteth? But He can. But His infinite wisdom thinketh and decreeth the contrary. And though we cannot see a reason for it, though we cannot see a reason for it, Yet he hath a most just reason. We never with our eyes saw our own soul, yet we have a soul. We see many rivers, but we know not their first spring and original fountain, yet they have a beginning. What he's saying is God is wise, and we don't always see his wisdom. And we, you know, he could bring us to heaven with ease and prosperity, but his wisdom and his justice demands that that not be so. You cannot and you must not have a more pleasant or more easy condition here than he had. Then he goes on. He says, Madam, when you are come to the other side of the water and have set down your foot on the shore of glorious eternity, that I may attain the resurrection from the dead by any means possible, have set down your foot on the shore of glorious eternity, and look back again to the waters into your wearisome journey, and shall see in that clear glass of endless glory nearer to the bottom of God's wisdom, you shall then be forced to say, if God had done otherwise, if by any means possible, if God had done otherwise with me than He hath done, I had never come to the enjoying of this crown of glory. Isn't that beautiful? by any means possible. And when you attain to the resurrection from the dead with Christ, you will be glad for all of the means that God used to get you to that crown of glory. But for now, it is your part now to believe, 
and to suffer and to hope and to wait. For I protest in the presence of that all discerning eye who knoweth what I write and what I think that I would not want the sweet experience of the consolations of God for all the bitterness of affliction. Nay, whether God come to His children with a rod or a crown, if by any means possible. If He come Himself with it, it is well. If He come Himself with it, whatever the means possible, if He come Himself with it, it is well. Welcome. Welcome, Jesus. What way soever thou come, if we can get a sight of thee. And sure, I am. It is better to be sick, providing Christ come to the bedside. And draw aside the curtains and say, Courage, I am thy salvation. Than to enjoy health being lusty and strong, and never to be visited of God. Worthy and dear lady, in the strength of Christ, fight and overcome. And then he turns in the letter, and he starts to speak. Samuel Rutherford was a very tender man, and he was always opening his heart and life up with the sheep, and In this, uh, he starts to turn to the sufferings that he faces in the letter. We are in great fears of a great and fearful trial to come upon the Kirk of God. For these who would build their houses and nests upon the ashes of mourning Jerusalem have drawn our King upon hard and dangerous conclusions against such as are termed Puritans for the rooting of them out. Our prelates assure us that for such as will not conform, there is nothing but imprisonment and deprivation. Surrender to the Church of England, or there is nothing but imprisonment and deprivation. The spouse of Jesus will ever be in the fire. That's a fascinating phrase to just come out in a letter, you know? The spouse of Jesus will ever be in the fire, but I trust in my God she shall not consume because of the good will of him who dwelleth in the bush, for he dwelleth in it with good will. All sorts of crying sins without controlment abound in our land. The glory of the Lord is departing from Israel. And the Lord is looking back over his shoulder to see if any will say, Lord, tarry. And no man requesteth him to say. And so he's referencing a tremendous persecution that's going to come upon coming and it's going to come upon the Puritans in England. So there's persecution. He's going to reference here the sin. You know, Jesus suffered at the hands of sin 
and you will suffer at the hands of sin. For myself, I have daily griefs through the disobedience unto and contempt of the Word of God. I was summoned before the High Commission by a profligate person in this parish convicted of incest. Oh, what are you going to do with that? Here's what you think. You think that if that ever happens in a church, ever, that it necessarily means that the church is bad, everything's gone wrong, and this is the kind of place I need to leave. That's what you think. You think there's no sin, suffering, that should ever happen in the church, except it's always been the case, and it will always be the case, and it happened in Samuel Rutherford's church. Will you just believe that so I can move on from that sometime? Really? Will you just really believe that? Humbly. And it could be you for crying out loud. Would you just have some doubt about yourself in true humility? Rather than doubt the truth with conviction? In the business, he's consoled by this man. In the business, Mr. Alexander Colville, for respect to your ladyship, was my great friend, wrote a most kind letter to me. The Lord give him mercy in that day. Sin. Persecution? Sin. Grief. My wife now, after a long disease and torment, for the space of a year and a month, is departed this life. The Lord hath done it. Blessed be His name. And then sickness. I have been diseased of a fever for the space of 13 weeks and am yet in that sickness so that I preach but once on the Sabbath with great difficulty. I am not able either to visit or examine the congregation. In other words, dear sister, do not think that your suffering is unique. I suffer in the same sufferings as Christ with you. I have great sympathy with your sufferings and yet take hold of Christ. Take hold of Christ. How else will you know Him? How else will your hope grow that you might attain the resurrection from the dead apart from sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, becoming the shame of the world. You are the shame of the world. Despised. Don't spend all your time angry about losing your freedom to the world we live in in the United States of America. Frankly, God's going to take it away because all we've done with it is create wickedness. See, the Constitution will protect it. No, it won't. Not when God takes it away according to His judgment and providence. Don't spend all your time angry about it. This is exactly where you share in the suffering of Christ. 
This is exactly where you share in the suffering of Christ. And in America, there's been no greater day in a strange, awful irony, there's been no greater day to know and share in the suffering of Christ than we're currently at and where we're headed. Do we celebrate it? No. What we're saying is God uses all of the sufferings that we might know Christ in His sufferings. Do we stand against it? Of course we do for as long as we can. I mean that at the political level. We'll always stand against it. I mean that at the constitutional level, right? And if God gave us the freedom we have, He has every right to take it away. He has every right to take it away. I don't even understand why He wouldn't have done it already entirely. You understand how much mercy you're living in on borrowed time because of the gentle touches of the wrath of God and of His patience and forbearance with us. Never has been, been there been a better time in the history of our country and must we keep before us that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. And that must be the first place, church, that you go to. That must be the first thought that you think about the nature of your current sufferings as a Christian in the United States of America, as a Christian in Bloomington. That must be your first thought. That must be your first aim. That must be your first place of gratitude. Because this suffering, if by any means possible, if this is what must come upon our land, if by any means possible, that if by any means possible, you know, the decadence of our country, I, you, we may attain to the res- resurrection of the dead. And oh, Father, let it be so. Let it be so. Amen. Stand with me for prayer. Oh, Jesus. May we be a church that wants to know you like the Apostle Paul. Holy Spirit, help us lift our hearts to Christ and our lives to Christ. Help us to live, Father, with Christian faith in a generation of endless wickedness and lawlessness. Help us to actually have faith 
Help us to know that these are necessary sufferings. Help us to know that these are sufferings that cause us to know our Savior and our Lord, to share in His sufferings with Him, to identify with Him as the firstborn among many brothers, to know Him in His fullness, not just in His victory, but in His suffering, and give power by the resurrection in our hearts and lives to endure this suffering. And give us the submissive heart, all of us, that whatever bittersweet providence this life brings, whatever bittersweet providence is reckoned to us for living with simple Christian faith in a world that hates you, may we know you in your sufferings. May we share in them. You are the Lamb. And may we be willing to be led like lambs to the slaughter also, that we might attain, if by any means possible, the resurrection of the dead. In Jesus' name, amen.